You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. Remarkably, liquid milk is the starting point for all cheese. I talk about milk for cheese making with two influential figures in the British food scene. Bronwyn Percival, cheese buyer for Neil's Yard Dairy and co-author of Reinventing the Wheel, and Patrick Holden of Holden Farm Dairy, maker of a raw milk cheese called Havod and founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me today Bronwyn Percival, author with her husband Francis Percival of Reinventing the Wheel, an absolutely fascinating book about cheese. Bronwyn, good morning. Good morning, Jenny. Bronwyn, we're looking this week on A Slice of Cheese at milk, and it's sort of, which obviously is the starting point for all cheese. And I would love your sort of insights into milk. And I actually wanted to start with a very sort of basic point. Uh, Perhaps you could talk us through the differences between raw, pasteurised and thermised milk. The vast majority of milk that we see around us in our world today is pasteurized. And essentially what pasteurization means is a process that applies heat to milk sufficient to kill the most heat sensitive or heat tolerant pathogen in it. So essentially it's milk that has been heat treated to kill pathogens. Mm -hmm. Um, You can do this through a variety of combinations of time and temperature, but at the end of the day, it's a legally defined heat treatment. And essentially for basically all of the milk that we buy in supermarkets and through third-party sellers, milk must, uh, cow's milk must be pasteurized. Right. Okay. That's interesting. One thing, you know, on this program, I've, I've talked about raw milk and raw milk cheese. So what do you tell us about raw milk then? So, I mean, as you might imagine, given the name, raw milk is refers to uh, milk that hasn't undergone any heat treatment whatsoever. And I think for raw milk cheeses, there's actually a definition that the milk can't have been heated to more than, um, I think it's 40 degrees uh, Celsius before the, before the cheese making process starts. Essentially, um, the heat can only be warmed to the point where the, it's required technically for cheese making and no mm-hmm. further. And obviously, historically, all cheese would have been made with raw milk before pasteurization was brought in. So yes. it's a very, this is a sort of, you know, this is the historic form in which milk was used for cheese making. Of course. I mean, for most of the history of cheesemaking, people didn't even know that microbes existed or that the process of fermentation uh, was going on in the background as they were making cheese uh, and souring milk. So, of course, as you can imagine, pasteurization is a very modern method that's based on our understanding of the microbiology involved. And then the other thing you come across is thermized milk, which I think perhaps is less familiar to a lot of people, which is another way of heat treating milk. Perhaps you could tell us about that. Sure. I mean, there's no legal definition for what 
thermization is. It's essentially to say that the milk has undergone a heat treatment that is not equivalent to pasteurization, so not as high as pasteurization, but it could be anything less than that. And uh, I think there's a perception that thermization is useful where you have milk that might be stored for a long time before it's being used or have come from a distance and that thermizing it can knock out some of the bacterial growth that might have occurred between the point that it was produced and the point that it's being processed. Essentially, make it behave in a more consistent and reliable way and perhaps limit the presence of spoilage organisms. Really, thermization is a movable feast. It, it doesn't mean anything in particular other than a heat treatment that's not pasteurization. Right. Okay, because sometimes you'll have cheesemakers will will say that they use, you know, you come across that they don't pasteurize their milk, which is technically true. But what they are doing is thermizing the milk. So that's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> it, so, it can be quite confusing, and I think one of the one of the things that is important to remember when it comes to cheese labeling is that a cheese might be labeled unpasteurized, but that doesn't tell you whether it's raw milk or thermized milk. Unpasteurized covers both of those conditions, whereas when a cheese is labeled with raw milk, you know that the milk has not undergone any heat treatment whatsoever. Sometimes raw milk is labeled unpasteurized, but you you only uh-huh. know that it's raw when it says raw. Right. Okay, that's really interesting, actually. And we'll come on later, to, I think, to explore this point of why why I might want to seek out a raw milk cheese and what you, you know, what perhaps what are the benefits of using raw milk. But another, I'm just really using you, Bronwyn, as a wonderful <laughs> way to sort of get into some basics. Perhaps could we also talk about different breeds of animal and the milk we get from them? So that, I was thinking of, you know, cow, sheep, goat and buffalo, you know, what are the differences between these milks from a cheesemaking point of view? Sure. I mean, if we're looking at different species of animal, like cow, goat and sheep, um, there are really actually some quite big differences between the milk, most notably in what we call the milk composition. The amount of fat, the amount of protein and the amount of water in that milk is going to be different depending on the breed. In general, Sheep tend to have milk that's much richer in solids, in fats and proteins, uh, than cows and goats. And goats tend to have milk that has a little bit less of those solids um, and that behaves slightly differently when you make it uh, into cheese. The other difference between the milks of these different breeds is in the composition of their fats. And Mm -hmm. um, you can see uh, that, say for example, what we think of as the goaty flavor, of goat's milk cheese is really a breakdown product of um, particular fatty acids called caproic acid or caprylic acid, which come from the same root as caprine, which is goat, Mm -hmm. um, which have that particular goaty uh, aroma. Likewise, the sort of tallowy, sheepy um, aroma of sheep's milk has very much to do with the type of fats that's in that milk, um, the conformation of the fatty acids. So those are all differences between the milk of different species that we might be able to taste when we're when we're tasting those cheeses. And so we see that, don't we? Because you see the, that bright whiteness to a to a goat's milk cheese, which is very mm. characteristic, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think that's that's down to a different reason that um, cows 
cannot process beta carotene within their system. And ca- these carotenes, these colored uh, mm. molecules are found in grass. And so when they're eating the grass, uh, that go the beta carotene goes into its milk and it then uh, exits <laughs> uh, with, the, yes. with, the, with the milk out of its udder. Um, on the other hand, goats and sheep can process that beta carotene um, into into vitamins and then the it doesn't go into their milk because it's been processed within their bodies and as yeah. a result that orange coloring does not transfer into their milk isn't that brilliant right <laughs> now let's come on to this really interesting thing so obviously you know if you're a cheesemaker you've got you know milk what you know I think there's often when you talk to cheesemakers they'll talk about finding good you know good milk for for their cheese tell me some of the things that would make good milk what would I be really fascinated on your thoughts Bronwyn you know in your role at Neil's Yard Dairy for so many decades you've you've got such close contact with cheesemakers in Britain what are some of the things that you you see them seeking out and what are some of the difficulties that they face well, I think if you're talking about what's the best milk for cheese, it really depends a lot on also what kind of cheese you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are going to be buying in milk for your cheese, and if they're going to be pasteurizing that milk, the microbiological content of that milk is not going to be so important to them. Um, and if there's the odd pathogen in there, it doesn't really matter that much because that risk is going to be controlled through the pasteurization process. The pathogen won't survive and the milk will be suitable for cheese making. Obviously, if somebody's making their making their cheese from raw milk, then absence of pathogens is going to be extremely important for them because cheese making is a process of exponential microbial growth. And if you have a small number of pathogens uh, in your in your raw milk and are making a raw milk cheese, they will have the capacity to grow to very high levels um, across that process potentially. So, you know, it begins with this question of, uh, you know, are you pasteurizing your milk or not? And could you explain, because, you know, in a way it sounds like be much simpler if I was a cheesemaker to go, oh, I'll, have, I'll use pasteurized milk, please, because, you know, there's no risk then of pathogens. Why would I, why might a cheesemaker want to use raw milk rather than pasteurized milk? I mean, the answer, again, is in the microbes. Um, so much of cheese flavor comes from the activity of the microbes that are in that cheese. As a fermented product, um, microbes go to very high levels during the cheesemaking process, regardless of whether the milk is pasteurized or not, because subsequent to pasteurization, starter cultures, which are microbial cocktails, are added. And it's essentially the work of these microbes and the enzymes that they produce that creates all of the interesting flavors that we associate with different styles of cheese. Now, clearly, cheese can be made using relying on those starter cultures exclusively for the for the flavor characteristics that are going to be produced mm-hmm. um but if you're making cheese with raw milk you have the potential advantage of using all of the native microbial communities to generate that flavor as well so you are looking at potentially a much more complex flavor and a much more potentially unique flavor because different microbes will be present in different amounts at different farms depending on farming practices. So I think when we talk about raw milk cheese, if there's added value to be had from making cheese with raw milk, it's because it has the potential to express something more interesting and more flavorful. And indeed, some of our, you know, our very notable cheesemakers in Britain 
do you really do you make a point of using raw milk? Don't they? Um, I'm thinking of Sir Graham Kirkham at Kirkham's Lancashire, Appleby Cheshire. That's mm. raw milk cheese, isn't it? And Martin Gott as well. Um, he makes St James and other cheeses. So I mean, so there's quite a there's sort of like a raw milk movement, isn't? It? I mean, not movement perhaps is the wrong word, but what I mean is there are cheesemakers who are who really really feel that this is how they want to make their cheese, isn't it? Absolutely. I think we're very lucky in the UK to have a really vibrant community of raw milk cheesemakers. And I think a community of people who's really interested in going back and looking at the way their milk was produced to think about what um, what they can do, particularly as farmers, to boost the interest level of what's going on in that milk and hopefully allow us to taste that in their cheese. I think if we're talking about raw milk, one of the really interesting things in the story of milk and how it's changed even in the last sort of 100 years or even less than that, 50 years, is the story of milk for drinking and how what's considered best practice in the world of milk production has really been defined by what's the best practice for making pasteurized drinking milk with a long shelf life. Um, Mm. And in order to do that, you really need to make milk with a low bacterial count because pasteurization is a heat treatment that has been designed specifically to get hot enough to kill the pathogen with the most heat tolerance, but no hotter than that. And as a result of that, there are lots of microbes that are more heat tolerant than the most heat tolerant pathogen. Ah. And those microbes are left behind um, and still alive after pasteurization takes place. So if you start out with a milk with a very high microbial, like a total bacterial count, and you pasteurize it, you'll kill a fair number of those bacteria. All of the heat sensitive ones will get killed. But there, there will still be a high number of bacteria that haven't got killed. And then you send that milk down the line Um, seal it in a jug and put it in someone's refrigerator and it will start going sour fairly quickly. And I'm sure Mm. we've all had the experience of going to the refrigerator and opening up the forgotten carton of milk in the back that, uh, you know, is beyond its best before date. Maybe we've never even opened it. You know, there hasn't been an opportunity for us to contaminate it. And yet it's clotted and it's sour. Mm. And essentially that is the effect of all of these heat tolerant bacteria that have survived pasteurization continuing to grow and work in that milk and spoiling it. So there's been a really high incentive for milk producers to decrease the total bacterial count of their milk and for low total bacterial count to be a proxy for milk quality that everybody has been judged on. That's so interesting. So this is very much, this is drinking milk, long chains, and and that I'm guessing in a way that that's a very different thing from what a cheesemaker might be looking for in milk it's, then. It's very, it's a very interesting point because, of course, when people make raw milk cheese, there's always this worry in the back of their mind about, does my raw milk have pathogens in it? And mm-hmm. it's very easy to conflate this idea of milk cleanliness and quality on one hand, and many of them will be selling their milk, uh, you know, some of their milk to be... Uh, processed and sold, you know, through a cooperative or in a supermarket while making uh, some of the other milk that they're producing into a raw milk cheese. That's not at all uncommon. So they've already been well-versed in this idea of what good quality milk is, i.e. milk with as few bacteria as possible in it. And it's very easy to conflate this idea of cleanliness with the idea of safety. So, oh, and we also don't want any pathogens in our raw milk. And therefore, the best way to accomplish that is to aim to have our milk as like low in total microbial count as possible, as clean as possible, and therefore as safe as possible. And I think what we're learning 
as we find out more about the way microbial communities work and what makes them healthy uh, and safe and interesting and, and good is that essentially that very quote unquote Pasteurian view of the world is is doesn't hold up to scrutiny. And in some cases, aiming for milk that is lower in total bacterial count can actually contribute to milk that um, is no safe, you know, is, is still has pathogens in it. Right. So we need to start thinking in a more sophisticated way about what contributes to the safety of milk and really take on board the fact that just aiming for a low number of microbes in the milk doesn't make it safer. What other things can we do to make it, to make it safer and more interesting at the same time? What sort of things are you seeing cheesemakers, particularly I suppose the farmhouse cheesemakers who are, and it's milk from their own herds that they're working with, what sort of things are cheesemakers in Britain doing to try and create better milk? Are they looking at the, their, you know, is it, are they looking at breeds? Are they looking at their feed? What, what other things? I mean, I think the short answer is everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when When we're talking about microbial communities, it's very much a process of resetting one's perspective, not to look at single factors, but to look at combinations of factors. And mm. I've heard it said, and I think it's a very good comment, that milk quality is the summation of all of the farming practices put together. But there are some things that people are doing that have been tentatively shown to stack the deck in favor of the microbes we want and stack the deck against the ones that we don't want there. Mm -hmm. I think a really good example of that is the interest that people um, within the UK cheesemaking community are showing in wood wool as a, an, a way of cleaning the udder for, uh, before milking. So wood wool is like wood shavings. Um, uh -huh. In the US it's called Excelsior, but you know it's very oh. similar to a softer version of the packing material that we use for the boxes at uh, Neil's Yard Dairy, kind of wood shavings for packing. Yeah. But you can use that as a, instead of uh, strong antimicrobial teat dips that are designed to kill all of the bacteria on the teat, to clean the teats before milking. And to put it another way, the milk teat surface, the outside of the, of the teat, has mm -hmm. been identified by scientists as one of the most interesting potential areas as a reservoir of interesting cheese-making bacteria on the farm and in raw milk supplies. And that's a combination of the lactic acid bacteria, which we all know and love because they sour the milk, and a variety of different ripening bacteria, which particularly for softer cheeses can have a really big role to play in terms of the development of those rinds, the orange smear cultures on the outside of washed rind cheeses and so forth. So mm -hmm. the teat surface is a really interesting reservoir. But of course, if you're aiming to make milk that has a low bacterial count in it, it's also a really easy target for intervention at the point of milking. And you can get, and it's very common for people to use very strong antimicrobial teat dips on the teats right before they put the milking cluster on to essentially kill whatever's on the surface of the teat or as much as possible, and then prevent it from getting into the milk. Right. So wood wool is an alternative to using those strong teat dips, where essentially instead of blitzing it with chemicals, you're rubbing it with this slightly abrasive material, which has the dual benefit of sort of getting rid of any 
debris that's on the outside of the mm-hmm. teat, but also stimulating milk letdown. One of the many reasons why farmers like it, beyond the fact that it might be preserving the microbial communities on these teats and contributing to more interesting milk, is because actually they can milk the cows much faster because by the time they get the units on, the clusters on the cows, the um, the milk is already kind of being let down fully by the cow because it's had the stimulation on the teats. Right. So that's that's potentially quite interesting. But like everything, you know, Going back to what I said before, this is a really multifactorial thing. And the one thing that's very clear is that if you have a cow that's been lying down in a really manure dirty shed, and it comes into the milking parlor, caked in, you know, <laughs> caked in, <laughs> yeah. uh, you can't use wood wool to clean that teat because it's, you yeah. know, you're going to get loads of stuff you really don't want to have in that milk in there. Yeah. And what we're talking about here is diverse and interesting milk is not the same thing as dirty milk. This is healthy milk that's primed with cheese-making organisms. So you say, wood wool really helps us make more interesting milk for cheese. Well, wood wool will only work if your entire farming system is geared towards having animals in an environment where they're going to be really clean and like pristine coming into the parlor. How interesting. Yes, it's very complex, isn't it? So not, <laughs> I say, not absolutely multifactorial, as you said. That's fascinating. And what something else I wanted to ask you about, Bronwyn, is you when we talk to cheesemakers, you know, they'll talk about how the milk changes, that, you know, that it's, it's not this, it's not one static thing. It, it changes with seasons. What are, could you just give us a sense of what are some of the changes that, from, you know, and you again are tasting so many cheeses, you know, from producers you worked with a long time. So you must see and be able to, you know, get a sense perhaps of how that, that cheese has changed and maybe, presumably it was the milk that would be a, be a factor in those changes. Could you just give us a sense of those, that sort of whole complex area too? Again, what we're seeing when we look at seasonal variations of cheeses is many, many different factors overlaid Mm. on top of one another. Depending on the farming system, the animals, if they're all kidding or calving at the same time, we have a factor that is early lactation milk has a very different composition than late lactation milk. So the milk fats and proteins and their ratios are all going to be changing and that contributes to differences in the output. And actually the way a cheesemaker makes a given cheese at the beginning of a season in that sort of a system is going to have to be completely different than at the end of the season if they hope to get something (laughs) that's sort of similar out uh, at both times. So there's, there's that element. I think microbially, you can definitely say that as that microbial composition of the milk is so completely based on the animal's environment, it's going to be totally different, assuming you haven't blocked its transmission into the milk by using lots of chemicals, for example. It's going to be very different um, in the winter time when they might be indoors 100% of the time on bedding and what mm-hmm. kind of bedding you're using during that time. Are they in cubicles or are they in loose housed on straw uh, versus in the summer where maybe they're spending 24 hours a day outside and when they lie down, they're lying down on on, on grass and pasture. Mm-hmm. That again is a, is a very important part of seasonal variation that I think we're just beginning to be aware of. And of course, you know, those things are making changes on the milk coming in. There are also seasonal changes that we see affecting the cheese making itself. I mean, it's embarrassing to say that something as simple as the climate control in the cheese making room is going to have a tremendous effect on the texture and flavor oh. of those cheeses. Because if they're acidifying overnight and the room is 10 degrees colder than it was in, you know, in summer, <laughs> in winter, you know, it's going to, it's going to 
be as big or bigger a factor in the quality right. or the taste of that cheese as anything to do with the microbes that were coming in in the milk. Fascinating. I mean, you know, this. You know, once you start talking about cheese, even scratching the surface, as I'm doing in a way, where you know the complexity of it is just sort of fasc- you know, well, it's sort of fascinating and exhausting at the same time. It's I a think. bit overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> it is over. That's the word for it. It's overwhelming. So, brilliant. Oh, listen, Bronwyn, that's thank you so much. That's been a great and really useful insight into milk. So um, I know how busy you are. So it's lovely to have you have you with us. Thank you, Bronwyn. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Bye. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they go beautifully with cheese. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches, using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter, slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop, enter the code SLICEOFCHEESE at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. So on a slice of cheese today, very happy to have with me Patrick Holden of Holden Farm Dairies, maker of a wonderful cheese called Howard. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. Nice to be with you. Patrick, this week on a slice of cheese, we're looking at the subject of milk from a cheesemaker's point of view. And um, I wanted to hear your thoughts about, about sort of milk from a cheesemaker's perspective. What is it that makes good milk for cheesemaking? Well, I, I once had a conversation with an Irish producer, <clears throat> cheesemaker, and she said to me, you know, when you're, when you're producing milk to make cheese, everything matters. Even your emotional <laughs> state matters. I thought that was completely wonderful uh, because yeah. she wasn't wrong. Uh, what matters when you make cheese is the quality of the milk. And there are three primary determinants of milk quality. One of them is obviously the, the, the breed of cows. Another is what the cows eat, which is critical, of course. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the third factor is how much the cows are loved and your emotional oh. state when you milk them. Because cows are incredibly sensitive and pick things up. So um, good milk it's a wonderful sort of alchemy of those three inputs. But I think what has been forgotten in the cheese industry, and that's what they call it these days because they're mm-hmm. sort of using commodity milk to make cheese, is how much those three factors matter, which is why the renaissance of artisan cheese making is so important today. You were farming long before you started making cheese. So you started making cheese in 2006. What, did you sort of try and, and sort of... I don't know, make your dairy herd into one that would be good for cheesemaking? Well, by an accident back in 1973, which is when we bought our foundation herd, we did choose Ayrshire's, not realising at the time that that would be a brilliant choice. Uh, it was advice for a friend, because we were about to buy um, Frisian Holsteins, which is what everybody milks these days. And this chap said to me, look, why not consider Ayrshire's? They're hardy and thrifty. And they're great converters of grass and clover, herbage into milk. And what is more, they have a good ratio of fat and protein in the milk, which is good for cheese making, and small fat particles, which are also good for cheese making. So here we are, nearly 50 years later, with a breed which is wonderfully suited to producing good cheese. Plus, we've never used a single kilogram of nitrogen fertilizer or any pesticides, which means that there's an amazing diversity of grass and herbs and other species in our pastures, 
which of course really affects the uh, the flavour of the milk uh, in a very positive way. I actually tried some Havod the other day. Um, I want to remind myself before I spoke to you, and it was quite. It was Neil's Yard Dairy. I think it was nearly coming up for two years old. It was an old. It had a wonderful depth of it, a long finish, a lot of flavour, and a lovely sort of complex savoury sweetness to it. You know, a little bit of caramel notes as well. Um, and I was thinking about this whole thing of what what gets expressed in the cheese from the milk from the ground, which is what you're telling me, isn't it? That it's it's beginning then with the with the pasture is very fundamental then. Yes, it's really a, a terroir thing. You know, there's a phrase, you are what you eat. Well, in the case of cheese, it's you are what you ate, eat. <laughs> or you, you eat, ate. <laughs> so the cow's diet is critical. It's obvious if you think about it. I mean, if the cows were eating awful stuff, they're not, you're not going to make good cheese. So you're tasting the story of this farm when you taste Havod. And mm. interestingly enough, you go into our store, I invite you to come and see us. There's a whole year's worth of harvest of cheese in our store. And there's a wonderful atmosphere because really you're, you're capturing the, um, the ecology. It's a kind of microbiome of milk from all those contented cows, what they ate for a year, all further maturing and fermenting in this uh, unique ecosystem, which is kind of the, the, the moulds in our store, which are of this place. So really the regional cheese story is all about that. It's all about the uniqueness of the food. Yes, that's interesting. And for you, and someone, you know, you've been such a champion of organic farming. So does this seamless expression of, of the land in cheese via milk, is that something that's been very rewarding for you? It's incredibly rewarding. And I think that, uh, you know, faced as we are now with climate change and the loss of nature, and growing food insecurity exacerbated by what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Mm. We need a future food system which is resilient to you know, uh, external shocks. And I think that relocalization of our food systems and farmers farming with, within the principles of the circular economy, producing as much food from the place where they farm as is possible without a dependency on outside inputs is absolutely the way ahead. And somehow artisan cheese making epitomizes that. Right. That's, that's a very sort of inspiring thought, isn't it? Um, to go back to your, I wanted to get a sense from you with the milk changing through seasons, because that must be another factor, Patrick, especially if your cows are grazing, you know. So do you, do you see those changes in the cheeses reflected as, as you make them through the year? You absolutely do. Um, every day the milk is subtly different because, you know, it is this fusion of um, what the cows ate that day. And obviously when they transfer from winter feed to grazing, that's a big transition in their digestive systems. And the milk reflects that. And also the stage of lactation, which is why we carve all the year round, because we try to maintain reasonable amount of consistency in the milk. But no, every cheese is different. And, you know, some people would say, well, that's a shame. You ought to have consistency. But in a way, why not celebrate the fact that every single cheese is subtly different from the one before, especially if you don't pasteurize the milk? which we don't because we believe in the, the quality of raw milk cheeses. Well, and that's also another really interesting and very important point, isn't it, in the story of milk. Cheesemakers who choose to make raw milk cheese, and that is a very full expression then of, of terroir in the way that you were talking about, isn't it? Because nothing has, you know, you're getting all the microbes, you're getting all those things. I would, so when you, just to go back 
backtrack a little bit, Patrick. When you talk about um, the shift from winter feed to, to grazing, what, what does change? I often hear that that's a change, but I wondered, what does it mean from a cheesemaker's point of view? Is it to do with fat levels in the milk or protein levels? Well, it's not necessarily the fat and protein percentages, although they will alter. It's just the, I, I suppose you've got to remember that the cows are eating, eating in our case, mainly silage, which is fermented grass and clovers and all the things I mentioned for perhaps five months. And then suddenly they're on this, you know, rocket fuel, which is this mm-hmm. delicious, you know, April or May <laughs> grass, full of, you know, all the sort of vitality that spring brings. And the milk, you get a flush of milk when they go out to pasture. It just changes the whole process in lots of subtle ways. But I think the point about cheese making is it is a kind of alchemy in a way. You know, you've got the milk and then you've got the starter culture and you've got the timings and the acidity and it's a bit like being a very good chef you go with the process and you're mm-hmm. of course informed by the science of it but sometimes the timing is a matter of intuition as much as it is just measurement and uh, I think it's true to say that you can make really excellent cheese from winter milk but I think there's something particularly special about milk made from when the cows are at grass. Right, so summer cheese, so that's a particularly good time then for the, for the, and obviously there you've got that time, we talked about time and the maturing, so your cheese is a hard cheese, what, what sort of age do you start to, to sell it on at? Well, the youngest we'd sell is nine months, but as you mentioned, uh, it is perfectly possible to mature our Havod up to two years. Uh, Niels Yard Dairy, who buy a lot of our cheese, like to mature it on a bit, but uh, I think um, it's very good even relatively young, uh, but it's, it will hold, uh, which is wonderful from the cheesemaker's point of view, of course, because that means there's some flexibility, which we found was very good during COVID, because mm-hmm. during COVID, we went to once a day milking for a year. That was very interesting. And we also had to stop for two months because we couldn't get the staff and the two meter rule in Wales and all that kind of thing. So yeah. we had a, a shortage of cheese. Uh, and only now are we coming out of that shortage. But there's a sort of flexibility of when you can sell it, which is actually very helpful. Right, yes. I mean, a lot of cheesemakers switched to making hard cheese, you know, who are soft cheesemakers, because they were left with stock, obviously, and, you know, very perishable stock. So, yeah, I mean, it's been challenging times, that's for sure, for, for everyone. So, yeah, I'm just, I was interested in what you talked about the breed. So Ayrshire's, um, and you're in Wales, Ayrshire is a Scottish is that right? Scottish breed historically would have been used in Scotland. I think it's Dunlop. Is it, is it linked to Dunlop cheese? And uh, the Ayrshire breed is a breed from southwest of Scotland. Although, of course, there are Ayrshires all over the world today. But I think all cattle breeds are a wonderful sort of epigenetic evolution of the relationship with the of between the cows and the place where they live. So, in the climate of southwest Scotland, which is very similar to where we are on a hill in West Wales. Uh, the breed has evolved to cope with relatively high rainfall and uh, you know, a, a, a wet-ish and cold climate from time to time. And therefore they're very hardy. And I think that all breeds have that sort of history of this um, fascinating evolution of epigenetic adaptation between the animals and the place where they live. And the Ayrshire is no exception. And when you chose to have a herd of Ayrshire's as opposed to the black and white to the Frisians, 
were, were you taking a hit in, in the amount of milk that you would get? Because beef freezers are pretty prolific, aren't they? They're good milkers, big milkers. That's right. I mean, many of the uh, Holstein Friesian herds, which are permanently housed today, never get out to grass, are giving up to 12,000 litres per year or even more than that, whereas our cows will only give about 5,000 litres a year. Oh. Now, that's partly the way we keep them and what we feed them, but I think cows that are genetically programmed to produce more milk than is good for them is not a recipe for excellent cheese. And I believe that we've got to move away from commodity milk production, from all these factory farms, uh, back to farms which actually operate in harmony with nature and where the herds are small enough for the people who look after them to give them individual love and attention. So how big is your herd or how small is your herd in a way? It's about 80 cows plus the young stock. Mm -hmm. I, this is just a personal opinion, I think that above about 150 cows, it's hard to get the cows to walk to grass twice a day that's just logistics because you they, you know you don't really want them walking more than about three quarters of a mile each way otherwise it's just tiring for them uh, mm -hmm. plus you can't love in, an individual herd member if you've got two or three hundred or even sometimes up to a thousand cows it's just not yeah. possible there's a right. dynamic about that and i do believe cows are incredibly sensitive i do believe they need to be loved and cared for as individuals. And you talked about the um, putting the cows out to grass. Is that a moment? You often see footage of these really, that moment when cows are let out onto meadows for the first time. So almost dance, you know, skipping, sort of running. And is that, is that a lovely moment on a farm like yours? It sure is. And uh, I don't know how many of your listeners do Instagram, uh, but if they want to see our cows filmed on that day, Go to Havod Cheese on our Instagram and you'll see if you scroll back, um, you'll see, I think it was, it might have been not the COVID May, but the one before that or April. Uh, we'd, we'd, we've got a wonderful film of them just jumping for joy when they went into the field. <laughs> Worth a look. It's very lovely. And I'm very interested in what you were saying to just to round off, Patrick, because you've been such, a, you know, you are a champion of sustainable food and trying to change our food system to make it more to work better, I suppose. And do you see, it's very interesting, isn't it, from dairy farms that, you know, often they're under the industrialization of dairy and big dairy and the pressures it puts on dairy farmers. And do you see the, the market for artisan cheese that we have in Britain? I mean, there's some wonderful cheese makers, people like Johnny Crickmore and Fen Farm Dairy from a dairy farming background who then has gone to cheese to make a, find a different way to make a living with, but, you know, keeping his cattle that he loves. Do you, do you see this as a, a way forward then, you know, to a big picture. I do. I think this is a moment, you know, a moment where we've got to re, 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 re it's a moment where we've got to reset everything. Um, and I think from a, a climate point of view, nature point of view, a food security point of view, this idea of a return to small family farms producing milk and processing it on the farm is actually a, a, a really positive step. And it needs to be supported by the government through their new um, policy uh, ELM scheme, uh, which hopefully will reward farmers for delivering public goods. And I hope we'll see uh, the renaissance of family dairy farms throughout this country, but also the world, because they can operate in harmony with nature and produce highly nutritious food uh, in, in ways which are good for everyone. Wonderful. That's a very inspiring vision. Thank you, Patrick. It's been great to talk to you. Take care. Thank you very much. 
To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.